into the last uh, five to six weeks of the school year, just a few reminders. Uh, Some of you are making decisions in your discernment, right? So let's just review again the rules of discernment. Uh, You never make a decision emotionally. I had a bad day. I had a bad week. I don't like this. I don't like that. uh, Therefore, I should make decisions. Or the other way around. I'm going to put a cape on and fly, and I have this image of, of what ordained ministry is, which is always this uh, high-grade, high-level, high-emotional experience, and I'm making decisions based on that. The rules of discernment do not involve emotion. It involves reason. It involves will. Uh, it involves uh, the discernment of our Lord uh, as we're attuned in grace to be able to discern His holy will. Uh, often that discernment begins in spiritual direction, in the internal form, and that plays itself out accordingly. But it should also involve the external form. The external form isn't where announcements are made, or I've made this decision. Well, the formation advisor, which includes myself as the rector, is a part of that. Now, some of your dioceses and religious congregations also have expectations. Some bishops. And some vocation directors want to be a part of the discussion. So some uh, would also not be pleased by hearing an announcement made. I've made this decision and the bishop had no uh, participation in the discussion. Others prefer, in fact, that it stay at the level maybe of the vocation director in the seminary. So by now, you know what, how the church wants you to discern this in the external form as it relates to bishop vocation director. Uh, but certainly here at the seminary, uh, your, your formation advisor and or the rector would be a part of that decision as well, so that when a decision is made to possibly discern out, that's been done in complete freedom. So I would ask that uh, we follow those rules of discernment uh, as some of you may be making decisions uh, about moving forward. I appreciate your diligence to responsibility, uh, and while I, from time to time, have to call out faculty, staff, myself, and sometimes you all, uh, that doesn't take away from the fact of the high quality by which you have continued to build up this community, so I appreciate that. And I appreciate that the next five to six weeks you'll be just as diligent uh, in ending hard, ending strong the semester rather than tapering off uh, it's, all, it's been the tradition I've seen here that everyone ends on a, a high, strong note. And I, I would certainly anticipate that tradition continuing as well. We're men. If there is issues that need to be resolved amongst yourselves, that if there's uh, a reconciliation, uh, an apology, a tension, something that hasn't been reconciled, it's the year of mercy, but more than that, we're Christians. I would hope that when by time graduation comes, if there has been some difficulty amongst you all, that that has been worked out, uh, rather than holding on to the energy, the, the, the dissatisfaction, and letting that bitterness chew away at you. That's exactly what the enemy wants. 
And so let's prevail uh, with charity and being able to reconcile whatever tensions there are, which includes even the faculty or staff. Uh, if there's some conflict, something that you've been wrestling with, uh, let's put that into the light. Let's let the Lord be able to bring his grace upon that. So I would hope that that same effort can be uh, invested as we move through the rest of this semester as well. We began this year of mercy at the cathedral, uh, and that year of mercy continues. Maybe these next few days as well, as I had highlighted in Father Palermo more recently, the spiritual works of mercy and the corporal works of mercy. Practically speaking, how intentional have those played out in your formation since December 8th? How intentional? And it's not always about doing something beyond what you're already doing. As I suggested to you in a records conference, many of these you're probably already doing. So even in your prayer to see my day-to-day -day interactions with seminarians, the way I'm praying for people back at home, the way in which I'm going about my responsibilities in pastoral formation, you may already be doing this. It might be helpful for you to make a spiritual connection to those works of mercy uh, by discerning how that's occurred. And if it hasn't, uh, I'm sure you'll be talking to your spiritual director that you want to take advantage of an active, intentional exercise of the spiritual works of mercy and the corporal works of mercies as well. We're going to be um, finalizing what's been recommended to me from the, uh, from the formation team. It was discussed yesterday at the Priestly Formation Board. Some type of policy around the solicitation of money. Uh, it's been brought to my attention, and I need to talk to your vocation directors because I don't know in religious orders what expectations are uh, from your diocese. But it's come to my attention that seminarians, nothing malicious, nothing malintent, may be receiving support, certainly from Sarah Clubs, Knights of Columbus, but from individual benefactors who may be giving you money. And I think in the spirit of transparency, someone ought to know about that. Now, I don't know who. I don't want to get into the business of of uh, micromanaging uh, an understanding of who's supporting you. And this is more than the $10, $20 you get from someone that's here. But if you're getting consistent financial support, it just seems from what I'm hearing from the, the formation team that there should be some accountability. I don't necessarily think that needs to be taken on at the seminary level, uh, unless it's related to the seminary. Because I'm a Notre Dame seminarian, you may be getting some level of support, then should the formation advisor know about that? Should the vocation director? So that discussion is gonna unfold and I really wanna hear from your vocation directors what they would prefer. They may not prefer anything, uh, but I think we just need to be in front of that because transparency and accountability needs to always be involved with ministry. And as I've talked about here in formation conferences, that does touch upon the simplicity of life. And so if, if a seminarian is getting funds from multiple sources, and those sources may not be in communication with one another, uh, what's he doing with all that money? Which then plays into a discussion on what does a priest do? And there is maybe not a right or wrong answer. You, we receive a compensation, but you just did a funeral, and the family says they give you an envelope. There's $100 in the envelope. Have you worked out in your interior spiritual life 
because of the simplicity of life. What will I do with that $100? This was unexpected. I think I'll have a nice dinner this evening. Is that, and if we, the wedding, someone gives you 50 bucks for doing the wedding. If this becomes a part of, uh, there's regularity to this, well, how is that money going to be used? And are we going to accidentally start creating a lifestyle where my vacations can be at a higher level because all of a sudden I'm getting this, this funding? My preference for uh, social life increases because all of a sudden I'm getting more money than, than what was anticipated. So I think we, we ought to be looking at that. Again, there's no hard uh, gray area, a white area, a dark area. There's no really answer to this, but seminary should be beginning to work this out, even now, in real time, as people are being generous to you. Okay, um, moving away from the temporality aspect of the conference, as we now begin to enter into Holy Week, I would title uh, these reflections, The Paschal Ministry and the Priestly Vocation. The Paschal Mystery and the Priestly Vocation. Where does the story begin for each of you? How does the Paschal Mystery specifically begin for each one of you as it touches your soul, as it touches your existence? How do you articulate this most often in your prayer and in your interior life? From the church standpoint and from the magisterium, it's interesting how the last three popes began their pontificate by starting with the mystery of love. For St. John Paul II, his first writing is Redemptor Hominis, So to begin this new chapter in the life of the church, that John Paul II would begin with the the understanding and the recollection that every human being needs to be saved. And as we say at the Sunday Mass, for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. The redemption of every human being that's in love a redemption that is rooted in in an outpouring of God's love. That would set the stage for his pontificate. We would see with Pope Benedict XVI, Deus Caritas Est, that you've been studying, the beginning of how God's love, the fabric of this love, is what changes everything. From Pope Francis, Lumen Fidei, that in the midst of darkness, we find this light. I would encourage you, uh, as your spiritual directors probably have already asked you to enter into these days, I don't want to interfere with that, but to think of how those three writings, not to get into a theological review of that, but in your own spiritual life, where does the story begin as it relates to the Paschal mystery? Redemptor hominis. There was a point in my life where it came to me in in a very realistic way I need to be redeemed. This needs to be redeemed. This aspect of my life needs to be redeemed. Can you pinpoint that? And that's an ongoing story. None of these stories end. Is it Deus Caritas Est? The way in which I felt loved by God for the first time. In the liturgy, all the ways in which we receive the sacraments of the church. But can you pinpoint? I actually can pinpoint to this moment, this event, this experience, where I actually felt, heard, experienced God telling me, I love you. And, and what way did that love come to you? Through person, 
through liturgy, through sacrament. Can, can you put flesh around that? Lumen Fidei. Was there, we can all pinpoint to a moment of darkness, a darkness of sin, a darkness of desolation, a darkness where I began to experience the light. All of that comes to us in a very specific way through the Paschal Mystery. Uh, as we'll be hearing uh, in the days ahead, I point to John chapter 15, verse 9 to 17 at the Last Supper. This is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down your life for your friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have told you everything I have heard from my Father. There is no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend because I call you friends. Going back to Deus Caritas Des, Pope Benedict XVI, this sense of agape, and I'd like you to, as you go through Holy Week, what does it mean to lay down your life for a friend because God has laid his life down for each one of us? The great proclamation of St. John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him. How do you and I behold the Lamb of God? Listen to what St. John in his first letter. To behold, what does it mean to behold? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked upon, what we have touched with our hands concerns the word of life. For the life was made visible. We have seen it. We have testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was made visible to us. What we have seen, what we have heard, we now proclaim to you so that you too may have friendship with us. For our friendship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing this that our joy may be complete. Behold the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist makes that invitation. To behold him, to hear him, to taste him, to touch him, to testify to him, and then for the apostles to say, our joy will only be complete if you too can see him and hear him and taste him and touch him. Eros, we know from our biblical theology that that desire to taste God, to see God, to hear God was already evident in, in the Old Testament where the blood of the Lamb is sprinkled on the people to somehow wear the, the divinity of God, to, to feel God in that blood. Then for that lamb to be burned so that you could smell the burning of flesh, to smell God, to smell heaven, and then to eat it, to eat burnt flesh. That's Eros. 
the desire to eat, taste, touch God and to see him. Behold. So as you and I, once again, every time we celebrate Mass, but enter into the event by which Jesus makes himself beholden to each one of us. How is that touching us in the spiritual life as once again we move through Holy Week? When Jesus, on Good Friday, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The greatest form of eros that he invites us into, where the seminarian is able to, in his discernment, I commend all of this into you, into your spirit. So while Jesus is on display, this, of course, the event is not stadium seating. So how are we drawn into that mystery? So when John says to us, behold him, taste him, touch him, hear him, because my joy won't be complete, John the Evangelist now, until you have this experience, which can only be with us, this apostolic community. So otherwise, we fall into the early heresies of the church where it's all about me and Jesus. I have invented a way to neglect church teaching, to neglect the tradition of the church, to somehow be able to enter into his experience. Where the apostles say, only amongst us are we able to bring this experience of beholding to behold. So, eros agape, the perfection of that on Good Friday. So, in the sacred triduum, I would ask of how that interaction is unfolding in your life. As that is perfected on Good Friday, and we've shared these reflections before throughout formation conferences, as Jesus is wooing all of us, into the hands of the Father. He's wooing all of us in this eros, pulling us into the divine that we want to taste and to touch. So at the Easter vigil, when the priests and deacons are sprinkling this water, of which the Easter candle, that light, was being pushed into that water, into that darkness, lumen fidei, and unlike the biblical, Reality of the blood being sprinkled, when that holy water is being dispersed on us at the Easter Vigil and on Easter Sunday, this isn't symbolism. This is God sprinkling himself on us as we were baptized into the event by which Jesus is on that, cr- on that cross, wooing us into this new life. Then, as we call him the Good Shepherd, who lays down his life for us, then gives us the command, there's no greater love than for you to do the same thing, to lay down your life for whatever people are waiting for you. That requires from us an unconditional obedience. No restrictions, only I want this, nothing, as he is naked on the cross. So place ourselves not on the cross. There's only one Savior. There's only one Jesus, only one Lord, one Messiah. But we're baptized into that event. As we begin this Holy Week with the palm, 
And we know, again, the, the ancient symbolism of the palm was in the desert. As we're walking through that hot, dry desert, then there's the oasis. And the palm signifies life, something new, something that might quench the thirst. And as we herald on Palm Sunday that Christ is king and throw those palms at him, for he is life. Only from him can our thirsts and our hungers be quenched. How is that happening at Notre Dame Seminary? How is the victory of Palm Sunday unfolding in our formation as we are thirsty, as we are hungry, as we go through this hot desert? Are we turning to him? Have you found ourselves turning to him this past year? Or do we turn to the sin of pessimism, the sin of cynicism, the sin of a bachelor lifestyle, a sin that takes us away from Jesus to find that thirst and that hunger quenched by something else. The victory of Christ, the early church, you see the statues of the martyrs holding the palm in their hands as they lay dead. The victory of Jesus is now beholden to them. St. Paul tells us, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we might follow in his footsteps. And his footsteps, as he tells us, I behold, I make all things new. And there's no way to this new creation except through the cross. And so as we enter into Holy Week, how has that event of the cross, how is that unfolding in your formation? A formation that has no cross is not formation. A formation that tries to calculate and negotiate a way and around the crosses so that I don't have to feel or experience the event of Good Friday is not formation. One could therefore ask, as you ask yourself, am I any different than I was this past August? Am I, I think the same way? I am the same way? Because I've tried to do everything, the duck, jump side to side, because I'm trying to negotiate my way through this. St. Paul talks to us about a life that can be ours if we don't duck. Ephesians 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So I declare and testify in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their own minds, darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance, because of their hardness of heart. I don't want to be formed. They have become callous and have handed themselves over to licentiousness for the practice of every kind of impurity. This is not what you learned from Jesus. Assuming that you have heard of him and were taught in him, as truth is in Jesus, that you should put away the old self, your former way of life, corrupt it through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created in God's way and righteousness, 
And so on Easter Sunday, we'll be asked those two questions all over again. Do you reject the glamour of evil? Again, I've used the same questions in previous Rector's conferences. What does the glamour of evil look like for a deacon about to be ordained a priest? Right now, not two years ago. What does the glamour of evil look like for a brand new seminarian, his first year here? What does the glamour of evil look like for one transitioning from pre-theology to theology, from the lay state to ordained state with diaconate? Not a year ago, not six months, right now, on Easter Sunday, the church wants to presume that you've worked that out in your mind so that when you say, when the church asks, do you re I do, well, what is it you're rejecting? Not some theoretical, I reject it. Do you refuse to be mastered by sin? How is that mastery taking hold of our thoughts, our minds, our passions? The glamour of evil, the prince of darkness. Where has that prince grabbed me this past year? And can I reject it? I would ask that when you stand there at the Easter Vigil or Easter Sunday when those questions are asked, that you've provided yourself enough discernment to know exactly what it is right now. This is what I am rejecting. And this is what I refuse to have it master me. I've named it. I've identified it. I've talked about it. I've lifted it up in prayer, and therefore I can stand as that water was sprinkled on me. Yes, I reject it. So that when you come back here on Easter Monday, you walk through those doors again, you've rejected it. You've put it aside, and you've put on this whole new self all over again. The Mysterium Iniquitatis, it caught them all off guard. It caught Peter off guard. We're going to hear it all over again. The mystery of evil as it unfolded in Peter, who fell in love with Jesus as John the Baptist and Andrew found a nice little space for them to sit down and get to know one another. The mysterium iniquitatis was unfolding in Peter when he denied Jesus. It unfolded in Thomas. It unfolded as those apostles fled like rabbits. The sorrowful mother, as she stood there and watched the Mysterium Iniquitatis in front of her eyes, the Sanhedrin, the soldiers, some who, surely this was the Son of God, but they saw it, a dead Jesus. Simon of Cyrene gets pulled into this. You, over, get, in, get involved. Get involved with this. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, who got involved with death. How are, how are you involved either out of neglect and sin, or how are you being involved in Jesus' passion, being pulled into his death, being pulled into his darkness, being pulled into his funeral, being pulled into watching a crucifixion, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The Mysterium Pietatis, the unfolding of God's grace. Peter, do you love me? We'll hear that again a little bit later in the Easter season. Emmaus, 
the Mysterium Pietatis, the unfolding of holiness and the breaking of the bread, their lives were changed. Thomas, a reconversion all over again. Mary Magdala, the first to be able to experience this new life. These are the signs and symbols, the people of Holy Week, the events of our salvation. I hope that we don't approach these sacred liturgies as a ceremony, as a performance, as a historical recollection that each one of us are being in or being celebrated into the event so that when John the Baptist said from the very, very beginning, behold him, how have we beheld him? How are we beholding him? So that we can take the words of the evangelist and as we approach ordination, for those of you who will be, that you can say the same thing. I have seen him. I have heard him. I have touched him. I now testify him, and my joy will not be complete with a brand new vestment. My joy will not be complete with the size of the chalice. My joy won't be complete in these things. My joy will be complete only when you can hear him and taste him and touch him. My prayer for uh, this entire seminary during Holy Week will be for each of us individually. I will have... I always do the prayer sheet in front of me, uh, praying that whatever that Paschal mystery, however it's unfolding in each of you, my prayer is that the grace will be there for you to accept it, as painful as it might be, as joyful as it might be, so that on Easter Tuesday, as we begin the next stage of our final phase of this semester, uh, that this seminary, this apostolic community will be a new creation and once again recreated in the image of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dearest Heavenly Father, you've given the world the great gift of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the first to carry the fullness and the totality of your word. Indeed, she is the human tabernacle. We pray like her that our soul can magnify the greatness of the good news of your Son, Jesus, as we participate in the events of our salvation. We pray that as we receive the sacraments, the Easter sacraments, that we can magnify in everything we say and everything we do the glory of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that in this apostolic community, that the friendship the love and the intercession of Our Lady be received by you. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and in the hour of our death. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us praise the Lord. God will provide. If about 10, 12 of you guys can uh, uh, assist in the sacristy, it would be greatly appreciated. You have been listening to the Notre Dame Seminary Podcast. Notre Dame is a Roman Catholic seminary and graduate school of theology located in New Orleans, Louisiana. For more information, log on to www.nds.edu.